Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The war in Ukraine has left many of us shocked and aghast at how the European continent could once again witness the brutality of opened armed conflict. Wars may happen elsewhere in the world, it had been argued, but Europe had outlearned the horrors of war after the barbarism of World War II. Or at least, it was meant to have. Well, I'm your host, James Rogers. This is the Warfare Podcast. And while the idea of a peaceful Europe is an admirable one, it is by no means historically correct. The Kosovo War in recent history in 1999 is but one example. In March 99, to halt the humanitarian catastrophe that was unfolding in Kosovo, NATO launched an air campaign, Operation Allied Force, against the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. Over the next 78 days, NATO aircraft flew over 10,000 sorties, while the Kosovo Liberation Army fought on the ground until the Yugoslav forces had withdrawn from the Kosovo region. The victory was swift for NATO, and unique in that member nations did not deploy masses of ground troops. Instead, they relied on air power. In fact, NATO recorded zero combat fatalities in this conflict, a first with some calling it a perfect war. Yet, was the war really so perfect? What were the legacies and broader implications of the Kosovo campaign, and are they still being felt around Europe today? Well, to take us through this history, I'm joined by Arthur Schnell, a former British diplomat who served around the world, most notably as Assistant Director for Counterterrorism at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office in the United Kingdom. He is also the host of the Doomsday Watch podcast, and his recent book takes readers through a history of war, greed and blunders from Kosovo to the end of the war in Afghanistan. So Arthur is perfectly placed in terms of his career and his new book to take us through the history of the Kosovo War. Hi, Arthur. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Not a problem at all. It's great to have you here. I'm really keen to get stuck into the Kosovo War. Or, well, it's the Kosovo Campaign. Was it a war? What should we call it? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think it's fair enough now with the benefit of 20-something years since it occurred. Obviously, it was 1999. To use the word war, it involved armed conflict between nations. But at the time, that in itself was controversial. For example, the NATO Secretary General was reluctant to use the word war. 
certain politicians were reluctant to use the word war. But Tony Blair, who perhaps is the Western politician most associated with the conflict, almost made a point of calling it a war. Yeah. Could we call this Blair's war? Because was it Blair who convinced Clinton that this was something that NATO needed to get involved in? I think absolutely. I think if we think about 99, this is Tony Blair at the very height of his power and popularity. He was arguably the most popular politician in the world, certainly the most popular Western sort of democratic leader. None of the kind of later tarnish had arrived. And by this stage, whilst Bill Clinton had been a very successful US president, he was reaching the end of his time and, you know, had increasingly come tainted by certain scandals, which we might get into. So I think this was a war which Tony Blair saw as the kind of practical application of his views on how human rights can drive foreign policy, the idea of humanitarian intervention. And Blair ultimately was the persuader in chief. He persuaded Clinton to get involved, but he also persuaded global opinion to some extent. Okay, so take us into the context around the Kosovo war. What was happening around this time? Why was armed conflict necessary? Yeah, so Kosovo at this time was one of the constituent parts of the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, which was a large country in southeastern Europe made up of these different entities. And Yugoslavia basically, in in a sort of slow motion, in a slow action formation, Yugoslavia was disintegrating. So different parts, which are now recognisable countries in Europe, such as Slovenia, Croatia, had broken away. Kosovo was rather more complicated because, one, it was not considered a separate republic within the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, but also it was culturally rather distinct. So most of Yugoslavia is populated by Christians, many Orthodox Christians, and Kosovo had an Albanian Muslim population. And so there are various factors in the history we could get dragged into sort of medieval history and the significance of Kosovo. But the basic point was that I think it's fair to say that the Kosovar Albanians never really felt very comfortable about being part of Yugoslavia. And they were certainly subjected to quite a lot of kind of mistreatment by their Serbian overlords. And this was sort of running to an increasing pitch in the late 90s. So is this a continuation of the fracturing of the Soviet Union at the end of the Cold War? Is this the making of that decade where Francis Fukuyama said it was the end of history? You know, this is the the victory of the West and capitalism. And so is, is this a way for Western powers to start to engineer parts of Europe into their own making, to push away former communist Soviet elements, and also, you know, to make sure that... Um, genocides and mass killings are not taking place. Something which had been happening through that decade when we looked to Bosnia, when we looked to Rwanda. And it could be said that sufficient action just wasn't taken during that period. So is Kosovo a reaction to all of this combined together? It's certainly a a major factor there. So yes, in Bosnia, you had the horrific massacre in Srebrenica in particular, where women and children and elderly men were all wiped out completely you had the horrific genocide in Rwanda. And so you've got this situation where the Western countries at the end of the Cold War, there was still this sense, we're talking the pre 9-11 world, where countries in the West felt that they had won the Cold War, they felt that their economic system was basically the the preeminent economic model. 
And it was almost as if, as, as Fukuyama uh, said, sometimes he's slightly misquoted, but, but history had reached an end point, And that end point was liberal democracy underpinned by sort of a capitalist economic system. And so when you started to see in the sort of late 90s, increasing violence by Serbian security forces against the Kosovar Albanian population, there was this sort of sense in Western countries is we can't let this happen again. You know, we saw enough violence in the other parts of Yugoslavia breaking up. You know, I mentioned Croatia earlier, Bosnia notably. So there was this sense that we mustn't let it happen again. But you still had the problem that Kosovo was part of a place called Serbia that was a recognized state, which was part of the overall remainder of Yugoslavia. So I think Western countries felt when they saw violence increasing in Kosovo, inflicted largely by Serbian security forces, that they couldn't afford to let something like this happen again. Okay, well, I can understand that. You look to places like Srebrenica, like you mentioned, and you had Dutch peacekeepers who created safe zones, pretty much, where civilians could go in and shelter from the war protected by lightly armed peacekeepers. Now, peacekeepers are, at that time, not meant to really intervene in the conflict. They're not meant to take sides, but, you know, where they can protect civilians, they will. But then, systematically, the peacekeepers almost are complicit in helping load um, young men onto buses and then split women and children off who go on separate buses who are all meant to be led off to safety. But then it's those young men who I think around six or 8,000 who are taken and are executed. And this is all while the West is watching. So you can understand why you know you don't want to have those same mistakes repeated. And especially when you think of Blair's mindset, he definitely is a, about a human rights humanitarian. There's a very clear religious aspect in there with Blair's thinking. We we can't overlook that. But you know, these are the things that are inspiring him. But I've got a question for you, Arthur. When it comes to international law, we know that you cannot, as a nation state at that period in time, interfere in the sovereign rights and the sovereign obligations of that nation state. So how is it that Blair and Clinton and NATO are justifying any sort of intervention inside Serbia? Well, this is the fascinating question, which is really sits, I think, at the heart of the Kosovo War and certainly its lasting significance. So Kosovo, you know, was not an independent country. And, and as we've already mentioned, under the arrangements of the Yugoslav state. It wasn't even a separate state within the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. So it was part of Serbia. And effectively, under very conventional understandings of international law, the global community can't interfere within an independent country, even if they don't like what's happening. You know, there are lots of cases where, you know, we could talk about civil wars that have occurred and the international community has taken a step back. We could talk about perhaps actions that China has taken in Tibet and, and more recently uh, with reference to the Uyghurs. Uh, you know, there, there are loads of these case studies and effectively the international law is reasonably clear about this point. And yet intervention happened. And, and, and this is really interesting. So the UN Security Council is supposed to be the body that makes the ultimate decisions on these sorts of questions. And of course, the UN Security Council has its permanent members, US, UK, France, Russia and China, and the so-called P5, and then it has the temporary members. And those P5 members all have a veto. They can all uh, say no to any particular decision. Now, 
In the context of the increasing violence that was taking place in Kosovo, and what you saw was just chaos in that region, hundreds of thousands, I think by the end of 1998, more than 300,000 Kosovo Albanians had already fled their homes. There were ceasefire agreements, they were always being flouted. And the negotiations between the Kosovo leaders and the Yugoslavs were, were kind of stalling. So it was, it was a mess. The UN Security Council is supposed to be the body that figures out what to do at this point, but it couldn't. And it couldn't do that because ultimately Russia in particular, and to some extent China, saw its long-term interest as well as its kind of cultural responsibility as to stand by the Serbian leadership. And so that then pushes, if you like, the international system to breaking point. And, and of course, we've seen this repeated on the Syria conflict. Again, Russia repeatedly perhaps out on a limb, vetoing action that might be taken. So what happens then is that increasingly, and this was led by Tony Blair and, and very much by the sort of British diplomats, was this idea that you don't need a UN resolution in order to be able to take action. And this, I think, is the crucial moment. All right, well, I'm going to play devil's advocate here, Arthur. And I'm going to say that, you know, that's a pretty a big precedent to set. That's a precedent that says that you're going to bypass the UN Security Council and you're going to wage a war, lethal force, inside a sovereign nation and violate the sovereignty of that nation state. And yeah. as you mentioned, much later on, these things happen again. You can look through to Syria. You can look through to Libya. You can uh, look through to Russia now in Ukraine. Yeah. So did the West here, and I understand they were between a rock and a hard place, or at least Blair thought he was, did they start to lay the foundations for unpicking the international system that the West established after the Second World War and the principles and norms of international law that are meant to keep the system rolling? Well, I think the answer is yes, they did. So basically what happened was that in the absence of a UN resolution, it was eventually decided, and as I say, I think Blair played a very important role here in persuading Bill Clinton, who was initially rather reluctant. It was decided that NATO, NATO would take action. Now, let's remember, what is NATO? The North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It was founded after the Second World War. Its, its essential function was to be a defensive alliance of Western countries against the Warsaw Pact, of course, led by the USSR. It was effectively the Western bloc of the Cold War. Now, this is at a period when the Cold War is over. Russia is possibly at its weakest point in recent history. And NATO, it would have been impossible to claim that Serbia was somehow a threat to Germany or, or to the security of other NATO countries. So NATO was deciding that its job was to take a role in a kind of wider military European security perspective and with a mandate, as it were, on human rights basis. Now, if we try to understand the significance of this, to go back to your question, James, I mean, I think this has had a long-term impact because whether or not we accept that the action was justified it has been used by others to justify their own actions. And in fact, let's remember what Vladimir Putin said in 2014 when he invaded bits of Ukraine. You know, the, the long Russian invasion of Ukraine, as we all know, began in 2014 with the takeover of Crimea and the invasion of those eastern provinces in the Donbass. And Putin, in Parliament, in the Russian Duma in 2014, angrily talked about how NATO countries 
that he said they screwed everybody. In fact, he used a much ruder word, which, which I, I won't translate into English. And he basically, his point was, how dare they complain about us in 2014 doing this when they started this in NATO back in the 1990s. Now, there are lots of inadequacies to this comparison. I'm certainly not defending Putin. I'm certainly not saying he was justified because of what happened in 99 with NATO. But it is very easy to see how this moment of change in international norms then was able to be used by others for their own means and for their own arguably much more cynical means. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because the Kosovo campaign seems to sufficiently anger Kofi Annan, the Secretary General of the United Nations at the time, to such an extent that you actually start to have the pushing through of new levels of international law called the responsibility to protect that mean if this does happen again, there is a mechanism for nations to come together and to agree that it's okay to get involved in the affairs of a nation state if that nation state fails in its primary responsibility, which is to protect its own people. So, you know, I'll put another hat on here, Arthur, and ask you, well, actually, did Blair make the right decision here? He starts pioneering new international laws that get adopted and creates a whole new world where it's possible to protect individual peoples from their own brutal dictators or leaders. I think the thing about this is that the principle is very attractive. And of course, there are facts on the ground, and I mean this in the literal sense of what was happening on the ground in Kosovo, that were undeniable. As I mentioned, hundreds of thousands of people had fled their homes. There were massacres. It was absolutely, undeniably a terrible situation. But where the difficulty lies, I think, is a couple of things. One is you create these principles, but what are the practical effects? So, you know, we've talked about NATO's intervention. What did it actually involve? It involved a 78-day aerial bombardment of Serbia and including bits of Kosovo. And one of the first things that's interesting about this is that the NATO assumption, and, and there's lots of reports that, you know, evidence this, the NATO assumption was that the Serbians would fold almost immediately. You know, the moment these high-tech NATO planes, US, UK, so on, started, you know, dropping guided missiles and, and other munitions, the Serbians would put their hand up and say, OK, we're done here. But they didn't. They held out for 78 days. And during that period, they accelerated all the things that they were doing that was causing the difficulty. They were driving Kosovars out of their homes. They were carrying out more massacres. So arguably, NATO made the situation worse by creating a sort of accelerated programme of Serbian war crimes against Kosovars. So I think that's one issue. And I think the secondary issue here is actually the way in which you create these structures, such as the responsibility to protect, and, and that sort of legal framework was then arguably the framework under which, at a later date, there was international intervention in Libya with the argument that the protection was against Gaddafi, who was threatening terrible things against the Libyan rebels. We're talking 2011 now. But once again, it's not clear exactly whether the international community achieved anything in Libya in terms of stopping a massacre. You know, was Gaddafi actually planning to carry out a massacre? You know, Libya experts will tell you, no, he probably wasn't. Was the ultimate outcome in Libya any better? Well, Libya is now basically a failed state with two governments, possibly more, depending on what month of the year you're looking at it. So I think 
the, the challenge with a lot of these things, going back to Tony Blair, Tony Blair, I'm somebody who I believe that he was driven by a genuine moral purpose. You know, he's a religious man. He believes very strongly in this idea of, of a sort of human rights approach to foreign policy. But the actual practical outcome, we look at Libya, we look at Kosovo, and if we look at Iraq, which was, you know, a version of the responsibility to protect idea, the practical outcomes in these interventions has been pretty ghastly. From Wondery, American History Tellers is a podcast that explores extraordinary events from the history of the United States and brings them to life. And in an all-new season, you'll learn about a tragedy that is often overlooked in American history, the Great Mississippi Flood. In the summer of 1926, the American Midwest saw rainfall like it had never seen before, and there was only one place for all that rain to go, the Mississippi River. In total, the flood submerged 27,000 square miles in seven states, destroying crops, paralyzing transportation, and washing away hundreds of farms and communities. By the time the flood waters receded, as many as 1,000 Americans were dead, and more than 600,000 were left homeless. Learn about the forgotten history of one of America's worst natural disasters, and how the racism, exploitation, and betrayal that followed it transformed the American landscape forever. Listen to American History Tellers on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen one week early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Let's put Libya to one side for one second. I'm happy to do a whole other podcast (laughs) on Libya. And the, the point there as well, though, is that The international law mechanism, the responsibility to protect, by 2011, by the time Libya was waged, was actually working. Libya is a product of that international system working, rightly or wrongly, because Russia did not veto it. It was Medvedev in power, and instead they abstained, and 
As a result, the invasion into Libya was allowed to happen and Gaddafi was toppled and all that instability is as a result of that. Now, when it comes down to Kosovo, of course, this is done outside the remits of the United Nations for those reasons we spoke about earlier. But you asked, you said, did it have any impact? Was it worth going to to war? Was it worth breaking these rules of the international system? Well, look at Kosovo today. It's a de facto state, at least. It's Mm. peaceful. Is that not a good enough reason to justify Blair's war in Kosovo? Well, it's a very good question because, of course, there were hundreds of thousands of Kosovars who, as we said, were you know driven out of their homes after NATO's intervention. Eventually, most of those came back. As you say, Kosovo is is more or less an independent state, although actually its uh, level of recognition globally is surprisingly low. It's even struggled with some European countries because of the precedent set, you know, by a breakaway region becoming a free, uh, an independent state. You know, a lot of countries are very troubled by that precedent, whether we're talking about Spain, China, there's a long list of countries that struggle with that. But we also have to think about the impact in the other way. And undoubtedly, there are Serbians who were resident in Kosovo, who themselves were the subject of human rights violations at the hands of the Kosovars. And we shouldn't forget that the KLA, the Kosovo Liberation Army, is a pretty complicated entity. You know, it involves people who are associated with organized crime. It, 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 some people, independent observers, have described it as a terrorist movement. This is by no means, a, you know, a straightforward liberation struggle. And of course, such things are probably never straightforward. But I think I need to answer your question in a bigger perspective, because I think what's important here is not just about Kosovo itself, but about the perception. My sense is that the Kosovo conflict was perceived as a great success at the time, particularly by Western countries and particularly by Blair and the people in his sort of centre-left space. In the it was called the space. perfect war, wasn't it, Arthur? I've heard it called that many times, the perfect war. Well, there you go. And interestingly, your listeners might be interested to know that the name Tony Blair as a single name is a relatively popular name for boys in Kosovo. And there have been one or two people, in, in fact, one, I think he's just called Blair, B-L-E-R, but pronounced Blair, who became a footballer, you know, fairly nationally recognised guy in Kosovo. So, So that gives us a sense of how big a figure Tony Blair is in Kosovo. And I think there's a sort of hubristic element to this, that for Blair, this perfect war, uh, Kosovo, a country where he's greeted as a hero, not, not without reason, he felt that there was a new way to deal with global challenges, challenges around human rights violations, around dictators who are seen as out of control. Clearly in Serbia, we had this figure of Slobodan Milosevic. But at that same time in the late 90s, people were talking about Saddam Hussein in Iraq and whether he was a problem. So it's that perception of, I wouldn't say the Kosovo war was a failure, but I think like many wars, it was very complicated and caused a lot of unintended consequences. But it was viewed as a huge success, as the perfect war. And that put kind of rocket boosters under Tony Blair's kind of self-confidence as a sort of geostrategic leader, which meant that when, after the 9-11 attacks, that these questions around intervention were being sort of thrown up, Blair had this enormous self-confidence that drove him into supporting the intervention in Iraq, the invasion of Iraq, which I think, you know, there's now a bit of a consensus, is probably the greatest sort of geostrategic error of the late 20th century. And we're still grappling with the effects of that today. 
Well, let's unpack that a little bit, because when it comes to Kosovo, this term perfect war arises as a result of the fact that it was a NATO air power campaign that underwent zero NATO combat fatalities. So this is a war where you can compel your enemy to do your will without taking a cost to life to your own NATO forces. Now, that isn't so much the troops on the ground or so on and so forth, but this is something that really proved to many advocates of air power that air power could win wars alone in some ways. It's the first proper introduction of precision-guided missiles, satellite-guided cruise missiles, the use of drones, although not arms drones in this capacity, to Mm. pinpoint targets. And I remember General Wesley Clark at the time saying that couples walked along the Danube and dined at sidewalk cafes as the bombardment went on around them, creating this imagery that the bombs were so precise that the civilian population didn't really need to worry. Now, this was a bit of a, a precision myth. There were a lot more civilian casualties than were documented, and they've come out in recent years. And of yep. course, there was the mistaken blowing up of the Chinese embassy, which didn't Indeed. do much for great power relations. But all of these aspects of the Kosovo campaign, do you think that they made the West overconfident when it went into Afghanistan? Because of course, wasn't Afghanistan meant to be just the next Kosovo? Well, I think certainly that that sort of hubristic overconfidence is a huge aspect of it. I think there are two aspects to it. One is the overconfidence in the actual techniques of war, as, as you've described very well, the advanced sort of aerial bombardments, which, you know, super precision. There's almost this idea of sort of the cruise missile drives to the traffic lights, waits for the green signal and, you know, turns right. And there was this kind of myth around that, as, as you've mentioned, but also this overconfidence that the West didn't need to worry about the rules-based international order because actually we were writing the rules now. You know, the fact that the UN Security Council hadn't authorised this, it didn't matter anymore because we were we were so correct in what we were doing. We were driven by the knowledge that, that we brought democracy, we brought freedom, we brought economic development. And all the other models had failed. You know, communism had failed. The sort of radical Islam wasn't getting anywhere. So I think that... A lot of those things, that the so-called perfection of this war, drove further mistakes in, in later conflicts. And one of the things, of course, that came out of the war was that after the aerial war, there was eventually a ground operation, but it wasn't, it wasn't a conflicted, it wasn't a contested operation. But you had a huge concentration of foreign forces in Kosovo, and Kosovo quite quickly became fairly peaceful, relatively prosperous. And again, that then created this false idea that you could very quickly overwhelm a sort of a slightly sclerotic military, mostly with air power. And then you would put in the troops and the civilian advisors and all the development workers, and it would all be brilliant. But one of the things that people failed to kind of get their heads around when you, you look at Kosovo and, and another conflict or another field of conflict at that time, East Timor. These were very small places with huge concentrations, both of military and international advisors. And then the next place was Afghanistan, which is a massive country, physically extremely difficult to dominate, a very large population, a completely different ratio of international troops and uh, development advisors and so on, relative to the size and scale of the population. So some of these things that might have worked in Kosovo certainly didn't work in Afghanistan and definitely didn't work in Iraq. But the West thought they'd worked in Afghanistan. I I remember seeing 
October, the war starts, October 2001. By yeah. November, there's already legislation going through the United Nations that's saying it's time to implement peace-building measures because yeah. this initial air power campaign, how the war starts in Afghanistan, alongside, of course, the deployments of special operations forces that are trying to hunt mm. down al-Qaeda, but this combination of air power and small footprint special operations forces, much like the way in which the West deploys war today, to be perfectly honest, after the failures yeah. of big, heavy ground deployments in Afghanistan and Iraq. But by November 2001, none of that had happened yet. The gigantic ground campaign hadn't really started in any way, shape or form. Instead, the war had been won, had it not? Well, it's a very good question. I think with Afghanistan... You could say the war had been won if if the, the objective of the war was to dislodge al-Qaeda from Afghanistan. Because actually, the base, and of course al-Qaeda means the base in Arabic, the, the sort of physical infrastructure of Osama bin Laden's movement was dislodged, as you say, basically by November, certainly by December of 2001. So, you know, 9-11 attacks in September, by within three months, you could argue the job had been done. The difficulty was that at that point, there was then this idea, which on the face of it, completely logical and sensible, which is we can't allow a country as poor and as overlooked as Afghanistan to be a sort of breeding ground, a kind of tabula rasa for these international terrorists. So we have to rebuild it and make it a strong democracy with a firm central government and the ability to control the terrain and so on. And so that was a different war. And and you you could argue that then you know the second war began at some point probably early in two thousand and two and it was that war that ended in twenty twenty one in failure. So is this the curse of the idealism of the liberal Western humanitarian agenda and trying to nation build and make nation states in the West's own? own shadow, really, I suppose, its own form. Is that what we learn from Kosovo and then again from Afghanistan? Is this the legacy of these wars we're talking about? I think it's one of the legacies. I think if we look at this sort of state-building project, I mean, the, the, the record is very patchy. Afghanistan, pretty disastrous. Iraq, not great. Libya, basically a failure. Kosovo, very different in the sense that it's a very small place. It is in Europe. It continues to get a lot of support. There's, you know, a big EU mission there. There continues to be all kinds of international support. And yet, even now, in 2022, the security situation between Kosovo and Serbia is still pretty prickly. These remain very complex, unresolved issues. Serbia is the only sort of large country in Europe that is basically supporting Russia in its invasion of Ukraine. That is a continued hangover from that point. There are lots of problems with this idea of intervention and particularly nation building, where we think that nation building means building nations like our nations. And that, I think that's part of the problem, that in Afghanistan, we seem to want to create a Western democracy. In Iraq, we wanted to create a Western democracy. In Libya, we wanted to create a Western democracy. And it just may not be possible. It, I'm definitely not getting into an argument about if these countries can or cannot be democracies. That, that By definition, that will be decided by the people of those countries. But it does not seem possible for Western countries to build these structures in those places. And I think we've got now a very, very large body of evidence to back that up. It's interesting what you say about Serbia there. I suppose we neglect that bit of history to look at why Serbia might support Russia and has 
incredible economic ties with China, to the point where China has signed a deal to supply armed drones to Serbia, and look into that into the future, perhaps worrying consequences that might emerge. But um, when it comes down to this, then, you're saying that the West shouldn't be getting involved in creating nations in their own making. So what's the alternative? There's a few things we might want to do. The first thing is, I think in Western countries, and certainly, you know, the work I've done and, and, and the book that I've written, How Britain Broke the World, is about how Britain as a country needs to be a lot more thoughtful in its foreign policy activities. And I think Kosovo is, is that's where the book begins. And I think it's not a bad starting point because we were driven by idealistic urges. We were driven by a, a political leader who I, you know, I have some admiration for. I'm not in the camp that I think that Tony Blair is a terrible war criminal. But the problem is that we didn't have a sufficiently sophisticated understanding of the ramifications of what we were doing. So it was easy to say, well, we don't need the UN Security Council anymore. We're operating to a higher purpose. And we didn't sort of think through, well, what are the implications of this? Where is this likely to lead us? Well, one of the places it's led us is that when in 2014, Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine for the first of two times, of course, as we now know, he used the, he cited this specific incident as a sort of reason why he could ignore the norms of international law, because, you know, if they don't apply to them, why do they apply to me? So that's one case study there. And so, but, but you ask, you know, what should we do? Well, I think we do need to continue to try to buttress the existing global order. A lot of people criticise the UN now, and, and it is very, very often that you say, you hear people say, well, the UN's hopeless, it can't decide on anything. But what they seem to forget is that the UN is made up of its members. The UN is not a separate entity. It's not another country that makes decisions. The reason the UN Security Council can't reach a decision is because the individual countries on the Security Council won't agree. Now, I'm not going to suggest it's easy, particularly with Russia's Vladimir Putin, but also China. It has proved almost impossible to reach any kind of consensus on certain types of key issue at the UN Security Council. But no one has yet come up with a better structure. And that's part of the difficulty. So if we think the answer is to walk away from the UN and say, well, the UN's useless anyway, we'll do our own thing. Well, we've got to, we've got to be honest that actually that hasn't worked either. You know, that hasn't helped us. Kosovo, Iraq, Afghanistan, to some extent. I mean, I, you know, there's a lot of detail in these arguments. There are, as, as you rightly identified earlier, you know, Libya had to, had to some extent a UN Security Council authorization, although some would argue that the, the Western powers went much further than the council resolution really gave them the, the ability to do. So, so you know, the, 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 there's a lot of kind of, you can get into the weeds of these arguments, but I think the basic point is that the sort of hubristic self-confidence of Western countries saying, we know better, to, you know, the extent to which the international norms are there are only there when we agree with them. And when we don't agree with them, we found a higher level that we can work to. I think that that has ultimately proved very damaging. Well, Arthur, thank you so much for your time. I'm going to let our listeners decide whether or not they agree with you and they can take to Twitter to voice their opinions. But tell us again, what's the name of your book and where can we buy it? Right. So it's called How Britain Broke the World. Possibly a, a, a provocative title. Not, anyway. not at all. I'm sure, I'm sure everyone <laughs> will agree with that, of course. But I, I hasten to add that I write as a former diplomat, as a former public servant. So I'm writing from the perspective of someone who is a patriot and somebody who wants, I want to make a positive contribution to the debate. 
The book is published by Canbury Press. It's out in July, but you can already pre-order it on all the normal uh, websites where you go to buy your books. Wonderful. And Arthur, you're here, so you've got to plug your own podcast as well. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Yes, so if you're interested in conflict, in questions of international relations, and the sort of big strategic challenges that we, we currently face, my podcast, Doomsday Watch, I hope is, a, is uh, worth taking a look at. At the moment, we're doing fairly regular bulletins on the war in Ukraine. But prior to that, we had a 10-part series which came out last year. So it's still pretty relevant about 10 major geostrategic issues and the way they're all interconnected. Arthur, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully uninterrupted ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War, and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day, from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross, and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.